it. Uh, the sermon thought is more that we would guard against complaining, uh, that we would rid ourselves of complaining, uh, and that we would recognize, too, that we don't have to go along to get along. You know, the world culture might, the world culture might be a complaining culture, but I want to encourage you, part of the salt and the light that you carry is that your mouth is filled with praise. Your mouth is filled with joy. Uh, that 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 your your heart is uh, full of trust toward the Lord, and that you don't have to fit into a complaining culture. And, and the, the complaint of the culture exists so many times uh, because there isn't that relationship with the Lord. That relationship that we have, that we share, that we carry. Now, when I think about complaint, I want to give you a couple disclaimers. For one, uh, I don't mean you can never complain, so just hear me on this, but I mean more, I think, the spirit of complaining that I want to address a little bit this morning. All right? Uh, it took me two, maybe three weeks to get the paper towel rack actually screwed up to the bottom of the cabinet. This is not an anti-Joel complaint sermon. This is not, uh, this is not, please don't remind me, I need to get the paper towel rack screwed up on the bottom of the cabinets. This is, uh, and when it comes to human relationships, oftentimes as well, you know, we say don't complain about what you won't confront. But I want to address more uh, the, the spirit uh, uh, as it is, the spirit of our heart, uh, the attitude of our heart. I, I want Joel telling me and reminding me to uh, get the paper towel rack hung up because I, I, I actually kind of space out on it after a while. My, my list is so long that, and I knew I needed three-quarter inch screws for that paper towel rack holder or it's going to come up through the bottom of the cabinet. So I, I, I want that kind of an environment. I want a healthy environment where we can talk and, and where I don't see things like that as complaint. Is that all right? But thinking about the spirit, the attitude of our inner man and the way we see life, the way we frame our heart toward life, uh, the way we're engaging with life, the way we're thinking about life, uh, I, I think that's what... Uh, I, I hope the Lord addresses with us today as we consider some of the passages. And, and I'm drawing out of the Old Testament a little bit today. Um, so I want to draw out of uh, some Old Testament, even though, th even though thinking, realizing, recognizing uh, that we have a, a, we have a high privilege as sons and daughters of God. And we walk in something amazing in that we're born of the Spirit. But I want to draw some uh, out of the metaphor of that Old Testament journey, that Old Testament walk, because uh, I really believe that what they walked through, what they experienced in the natural was, a, was an amazing metaphor for what we experience and walk in in the spiritual that God was doing something with them that was a picture of what he's fulfilled in us. And so I want to I draw on that a little bit, and I want to think a little bit about some of the journey. Uh, for instance, uh, Abram, the father of faith, is given this great vision of the promised land. He's given this vision of a land that was lush, a land that was beautiful, a land... 
It was a land, it's described in Scripture, a land like Eden. So this is, this is his destination. He's called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's called on this great journey. He's called to trust God and go to the land that I will show you. And so remember when he gets there, even he takes him up on a mountain. This is after quite a long journey. Takes him up on a mountain and he says, look north, look south, look east and west. As far as you can see, this is the land that I'm going to give you. There's a metaphor right there. As far as you can see. If you can't see, you can't have it. As far as you can see, this is the land that I'm going to give you. And so... Uh, this this journey of what becomes known then as the promised land uh, becomes a part of their vernacular as he God promises them this beautiful land that they would dwell in. But when he got them there, uh, even then the land was already inhabited, dominated. The atmosphere, the culture, the society was already dominated, inhabited by enemies of God. Those that were opposed to God, those that were enemies of God. And uh, at one point he says, you know, it's not time for you to go in because he said you have to wait. Uh, uh, essentially, the way God was going to give them this land is that they were going to be used of God as a point of, as a, as a tool of judgment against these enemies of God. And he says at one point, he says, for the sin of the Amorite is not yet mature. The sin of the Amorite has not come to this, this high level to where it's, it is necessary for them to be dispossessed. They were going to be used of God to dispossess the enemies. So this is part of Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 9, which are three of the most powerful scriptures on the promised land, talking about how that they would go in and they would inherit houses they hadn't built. They would inherit vineyards that they hadn't planted. They would inherit all of this stuff and that they would come into this, this great promised land. But they were working with God. God does this with us as well, by the way. God, God can get his will done and your will done at the same time if your will is submitted to his will. This is part, I believe, of Psalm 37, uh, where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's interesting how that if our hearts are for him, that doesn't mean that his heart is not for us. If our hearts are for him, then his heart is also for us, and both can be shown forth. Both can be manifest. And so this is, you know, part of what was going on here. And so, uh, as you know, they, they uh, end up in Egypt, but they were in Egypt really as a preservation or a protection uh, for this famine that was coming across the earth. And Joseph is used mightily there. Uh, and then they continue to remain in Egypt, and they grow to be this vast clan uh, of approximately two million people. And they're lending, living in Goshen, by the way. Do your parents, did your parents say land of Goshen when you were growing up? None of you said land of Goshen? I'm the only weird one in the whole room? Over here, other weird ones. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you're a kid growing up in church, and your parents say land of Goshen, right? It was some kind of an interesting expression. Well, that's where, that's where uh, the Pharaoh gave Joseph's family Goshen. Uh, 
and it was the lushest portion of Egypt. It was the premier. It was the fertile valley. It was the most gorgeous place in all of Egypt was Goshen. And that's where he gave Jacob, Joseph's father, and all of the sons, he gave them as a place to live. So they lived in the land of Goshen, which, which was, again, another pre-Edenic fulfillment before they got to the promised land as God was demonstrating his kindness to them with promises of Eden, promises of a restoration of what you had in the beginning. Back, back when Adam fell, uh, this is, by the way, this is on God's heart. What's, uh, what's on God's heart is uh, getting Satan off the planet and restoring you to what Adam once had. That's, that's a big deal. And, and believe it or not, they go hand in hand, right? So subduing the enemy, uh, essentially locking him up, right, uh, in chains uh, 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 and, and blessing you as you walk in covenant with Father. So it's interesting, you know, they come out of, they come out of Egypt. They come out of bondage. It became bondage to them to be in Egypt. Uh, uh, not long uh, after Joseph passed away, uh, there, there's a new pharaoh, and there's so many transitions that happen in Egypt, and and uh, pretty soon they're in bondage and they're in slavery, and and there's jealousy that mounts, and all of this is going on, and so they begin to cry out that God would deliver them, and in comes the story of Moses, right? So Moses. Uh, is used of God to deliver them, and they're brought out of Egypt, and they're brought through the Red Sea. And where are they going? Where are they headed? When they're brought out of Egypt, where are they headed? They're headed to the promised land. They're headed to this land that God promised Abram, who was then named Abraham. They're headed to that promised land that they had been promised their lineage 430 years before. So they're headed to that promised land, but you know the story. Uh, they actually get on their way. They're moving forward. Uh, the, the, they're headed to the Jordan where they would cross over into Jericho, and God is doing miracles for them, and they, they escape through the Red Sea. And as they're coming toward Jericho, uh, some of the guys said, and you can read about this in Deuteronomy 1 and 2, some of the guys said, uh, hey, Mo, uh, Moses for short. Um, they're like, uh, hey, um, we think it's a good idea that we should go and spy out the land. And so he's like, mm, all right, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Uh, okay, so he chose one individual, a leader out of each one of the 12 tribes who would go in and spy out the land. And so they're sent in to spy out the land. Uh, but they're right there, and they've, they've just come through the Red Sea, and all of Pharaoh's armies have drowned in this sea, right? And so they're right there uh, on the edge of the Jordan. And they go in uh, to spy out the land, and ten of them came back with an evil report. Uh, two of them, and we can read about this, the best passages for this are Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. We might get to some of that today. 
so they come back, and 10 of them brought back an evil report. Now, the evil report they brought back, uh, they brought back a good report. They, you know, the grapes were as big as golf balls, and, and uh, you know, the carrots were as long as your forearm. And, you know, they just talked about that they saw all of this beauty and all of this lushness and, and these crops that were astounding, and, and the land truly is everything you said it was that it it's a land of milk and honey it's a land of copper and gold but we saw giants in the land so this is numbers 13 so we can't go in 10 of the 10 of them that were sent as spies came back and said we can't go in now we hear later later in joshua 1 2 and 3 we hear actually rahab who greets the second group that comes 40 years later uh, Rahab says, hey, hey, 40 years ago, our hearts melted with fear. The dread of you came upon us. Where have you been for 40 years? So actually, you know, God was going before them. Everything was set in place. Everything was set in stage. They could have actually gone in to the promised land when God actually initially led them to the promised land. They didn't need to go to a, through a wilderness. It actually is what was in their hearts that caused a wilderness to transpire. So they're the one. God said, you are able, but they said, we are not able. So ten of them, and that's kind of the King James, uh, the ten, you know, the King James of that phraseology in Numbers thirteen is, "We be not able." We were not able. And verse thirty-three is like one of my favorite verses. It says, uh, "The ten spies they said, uh, we saw ourselves as grasshoppers in our eyes, and so we were in their eyes." Which is another powerful metaphor, the way you see yourself. If you see yourself as a grasshopper, others will see you as a grasshopper. If you see yourself as small and insignificant and unable, then others will also eventually begin to take on that same perspective around you, unless they've got some kind of a God-sized vision that they're operating in so that they can see you beyond how you see yourself. And so that's Numbers 13, 33, kind of the, it's one of the hallmark verses of that chapter. And so God says, okay, well, so if you can't believe, then you can't go in. Because even in that day, going into the promised land was directly related to faith. fact is, he said, none without faith can go in. And so there were only two, he said, that had a different spirit. You remember who they were? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb had a different spirit. They had a spirit of faith. And so he says, of all of you, only two will go in. Now, do you know why the, do you know why the uh, wilderness had to last as long as it did? Do you have any idea why the wilderness had to last as long as it did? The wilderness had to last as long as it did because all of the armed men who said we are not able and who agreed with the ten spies who said we are not able, all of those armed men had to die. So we had this crazy generation right there. We had this crazy, um, uh, interesting generation 
And it actually says that during that period of time, uh, the tribe just continued to circle the same mountain. You ever feel like that in your life? That's what doubt and unbelief will do to you. Complaint will flow out of doubt and unbelief. And as long as you walk in doubt and unbelief, you just continue to circle the same mountain. It says in Deuteronomy 2 that God did not say go northward, which northward would have taken them out of the circular route of just going in the same circle over and over again. They'd done it for 38 years until the last of those who were unbelieving died because God was raising up a brand new generation. Now, by the way, I want to tell you something that here's another metaphor. Even in this day and age, don't look at what you think the church is. Don't look at what you think the church isn't. Don't look at what you think with regard to the church is this, the church is lacking, the church is unrevived, the church could never, well, the church will never be anything in America again, the church is shrinking, the church is that. Oh, no, no, God can raise up a believing generation right in the middle of an unbelieving one. God can raise up miracle workers right in the middle of those who don't believe. And this is what God did in that generation. God raised up a, a complete generation where it says that all of them that then crossed the Jordan as they went northward out of Deuteronomy 2, he raised up a generation of those who believed fully, who trusted their God who saw the signs and wonders as Joshua and Caleb did. And so they were, they were uh, the ones that led them forward. And I, 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 I had a thought or a revelation, a metaphor, even with regard to the ten spies that didn't believe. And here, here's what I thought, think a little bit. Um, I think that those 10 spies that didn't believe have a little bit to do with our own soul. It's interesting, you know, when we come to the Lord, we don't immediately go into our promised land. When we come to the Lord, we come out of Egypt and we are set free from the bondage of the enemy, but then many of us also go into a wilderness. And many of us will have two things that we believe on the inside. We'll have two things that seem to come easy. We'll have two things that seem to agree with God. But we'll have ten things that we struggle over. Ten things that we complain about. You know, they complained about the food. They complained about the journey. They complained about their leadership. They complained about the water. They complained about virtually everything you can think of. You know, they, they even complained about God's vision for this whole journey. That's part of what we discover in Numbers 14. They complained about God's vision for the journey. God is very visionary. He doesn't want you uh, watching television all of your life. He, he doesn't want you settling for a mediocre life. He doesn't want you settling for a, a life that without influence. He, God is very visionary, and God wants to superimpose his vision on you. His vision for you actually includes some breakthrough, not for you, but also some breakthrough for him. He's actually got some territory, uh, and he, he likens it to a promised land. Your promised land is actually 
interconnected to dispossessing the enemy out of certain areas of culture, society, and the marketplace. So what are those 10, you know, what are those 10 voices? What are those 10, those 10 unbelieving ones who focused on the giants instead of on the giant killer? Let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is one of the coolest passages ever. Uh, I want to read it. I'm going to read a bunch of it. Um, because it's got a cool section in that talks about the wilderness. And I think it relates to uh, us getting our own hearts free of complaint. What amazing people we are called to be. What, um, what amazing privilege we walk in. Deuteronomy chapter 8, be careful to follow every command that I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, reading out of the New International. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, now listen to this, to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. There's a purpose in your wilderness. If you feel like you're in a wilderness right now, the purpose is not that you complain. The purpose is that you find the Lord. The purpose is that you find the reason you want to complain. Find the reason you want to struggle. Find the reason, what is it that keeps driving doubt and unbelief? What is it that keeps driving fear? The purpose is that you would see what's in your heart. God already knows what's in your heart. He wants you to see what's in your heart. He wants you, and your wilderness is going to last as long as it needs to last until you see what is in your heart. When you see what is in your heart and realize you can do something about changing your heart, then your wilderness is over. Deuteronomy 2, it's, it's, it's amazing. We, we look at Deuteronomy 2, we think, wow, this is crazy. He says to them, all right, you have traversed around this mountain long enough, now turn northward. He immediately begins to lead them into their promised land. And the reason is, further down in Deuteronomy 2, he says, because the last unbelieving one died. When your last unbelieving issue dies, don't you love the cross that we can run to the cross and put stuff to death? That today I can bring to the cross thoughts and mindsets and, and contradictions and doubts and fears that, that are keeping me from a walk of faith? I want to exhort you today, don't allow one thought that keeps you from a walk of faith exist. Why would you tolerate one of those boogers? Why would you tolerate, why would you allow one to remain or persist? Do you not know that it's messing with your wilderness? Don't you know that Joshua and Caleb, even though they were full of faith, they too were penalized and had to hang out for 38 years until the other 10 tribes were dealt with? 
don't think if I've got faith in this area of your life and this area of my life, then the rest of these I can just tolerate. No, no, every area of your life is important. Every area is hindering you getting into the fullness of your promised land. You keep tolerating and messing with, allowing those other little areas to have influence, bringing distrust, doubt, unbelief, murmuring, complaining, blaming, slander, negativity. They are harming your breakthrough. And quit comparing your breakthrough to every other person in America. God has something else for you. God has something special for you. And don't make yourself feel like it's okay just because you're a little better off than some others out there. It's not about being better off. It's being used of God to complete your destiny. And your destiny means moving some stuff out of culture that he needs moved and arriving in a promise that he carved out for you that's special and unique. And don't think for a minute you have to live as a victim. Nobody can mess that up but you. Remember how the Lord led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did you know something? You can thank him for every moment you've had that was hungry. If you learned in hunger, if you learned in hunger that what you were looking to was not your source, but he was, then you have grown. You have matured. Your faith has become stronger because you allowed the Lord to teach you in the midst of a circumstance, in the midst of something dark. And don't write theology in the midst of something dark. He already wrote it. Just follow his. Oh, I'm going through this because God, bye, 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 bye. No, change your heart and watch your circumstances change. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Wow. Isn't that cool? Of course, the promised land is totally different than uh, the wilderness. That's why he's actually training you to conquer everything that contradicts faith in the wilderness. Whatever you think your wilderness is, he's training you to conquer everything within you that does resist the walk of faith. Because the promised land, in the promised land, your clothes will wear out unless you know how to walk by faith. In the promised land, you will get hungry. He's not going to throw quail at you and bring manna around the side of the bedroom. You will get hungry if you don't exercise your faith. In the promised land, the promised land was totally different. All of the supply, the miracle supply that was available in the wilderness stopped when they went into the promised land. Why would it stop? Because they had learned, that generation had learned to walk, exist, have victory, and overcome by faith. 
They were no longer little dependents upon God. They had matured to become those who could partner with God, follow him, and obey. Speak his word. Walk in the prophetic. Declare his word and see it come to pass. So there's a shift. There's a shift when we enter into the promised land. You okay? Everybody all right? We're not going to end on time. I'll just warn you right now. Another Sunday. Another Sunday at New Horizon. Complaint on the way to promise. Why is this taking so long? Where are we going anyway? Are we there yet? Do these leaders have a clue? Their impatience caused complaint. Everything they were going through caused complaint. But not so with you. Not so with you. Not so with you. Let me read you a couple of verses. Numbers 21. And ask the praise team to come help us. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. And they spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. You know who's you know who you know who's the father's eyes are upon today. The father's eyes are upon those who trust him fully. And those who recognize complaint within them, complaint finding fault, murmuring looking for the negative, listening to it, harboring it, working with it. Father's eyes are on those who are bringing those things to the cross. In a humbling situation, we are humbling our hearts and saying, what is it in me, Father? that you want to wash? What is it in me that you want to remove? It's possible to live in the most prosperous nation on the planet and still carry around a negative, complaining heart. It's possible that we look at others and then 
we grumble about our journey, or we grumble about our status, or we grumble about our position. It's, gr it's possible that we look at the vision and say that it's too much or the giants are too big, or we look at the vision or the call or the inspiration we feel in our heart and we wonder how long how long and we get impatient in the journey I want to suggest to you that the journey is just as important as the destination you can get in too big of a hurry to the destination and miss the process that God's ordained in the journey and all that does is makes the journey longer because God's working out this perfecting of the inner man in the midst of the journey. Second Chronicles 16.8, were not the Cushites and the Libyans, a vast army with many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is fully devoted to him. Psalm 34, 5, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man called out and the Lord heard him and he saved him from all of his troubles. I want you to stand. The ushers are going to pass the elements of communion this morning. If you're new with us today or newer to New Horizon, you are welcome to partake of the elements with us this morning. You don't have to be a church member. We consider if you're in this building today, it is ordained that you're a member of the Lord's body. And if you're a member of the Lord's body, then you are family with us. And these elements are not about us anyway. They're about commemorating him. And as we consider this nation, we consider that we're here, we consider that we have been drawn here, placed here in this generation. Oh, that we would live as a thankful people. Oh, that we would find praise in all things, that we would find thanksgiving that we would frustrate the enemy because when he throws stuff at us, it doesn't stick. It doesn't produce the desired result. Instead, we trust him more. We look to him more. We follow him with our hearts. We subdue the doubt and the unbelief. We overthrow it. We kick it out. And we set our affection on him who's not only leading us into our Eden, but he's dismissing 
the enemy at the same time. He's using us to make a difference in culture, society, the marketplace, everywhere we go. We are the shift in the promised land. We're in those seven nations. We're opposing the things of God. We are those ones who are dismissing the enemy. It's a daily assignment that where God's called you, God anoints you to bring the kingdom, to bring wisdom, to bring light, to bring love, to bring hope, and to bring truth. And these elements are about saying, Father, I'm on your team. I couldn't have brought myself in. I didn't deserve to be in your family or on your team. But you did it for me in and through Jesus. Take the bread together right now. Come on, thank him that he was broken on your behalf. The fullness of what you deserve fell on him. The fullness of what you deserve fell on him. And you've been brought near by his sacrifice. Take the cup together. This represents the blood. Perfect blood shed on your behalf. Perfect blood shed on your behalf. Covenant sealing blood. You couldn't cut your wrist with Father and exchange blood. You couldn't exchange your life for a life with him, but Jesus did it on your behalf. Jesus laid down his life. Jesus went to the death and brought us into the fullness of Father, brought us into the fullness of sons and daughters with God. And Lord, today we take every complaining attitude, every complaining influence, every negative, whiny, fault-finding, negative, unbelieving, doubtful voice, attitude, mindset, we bring it to the cross today. We bring it to the cross today. We declare it dead today with those 10 spies. With those 10 spies, we put that doubt and unbelief and negativity to death today. We won't listen. We don't have to listen. We are with Joshua and Caleb. We are those who overcome. We go in. We possess our promise. We are those who believe fully that no matter how large the giants, our God is greater. No matter how large the obstacle, our God is greater. You are the miracle-working God. You're the promise-keeping. You're the way-maker. You are the promise-keeping God, the miracle-working God. We believe that. We believe that. And we set our heart and our affection on you in the midst of every trouble, in the midst of every trial, in the midst of every situation. We choose to believe you, and we will see the goodness of our God in the land of the living. We will see the goodness of our God in the land of the living. Hallelujah. Let's worship as we go. You're dismissed, church. We love you.